Hi, this is Christina Gonzalez. Check out my new podcast, Politics of Food, where we put it all on the plate. So often we eat things because they bring us joy or pleasure or just because we need the sustenance. But there are entire systems that are connected to what we consume before that food even reaches your plate. So much of this show is the exploration of that. All those interconnected systems and all the decision makers that created that and how we, when they're broken, can fix them. Subscribe to Politics of Food, launching in March. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Today's episode is a little different and very special. In honor of Pride Month, I had the honor of interviewing my two friends, Parag Mehta and Vaibhav Jain, a couple who has not just been an inspiration to the LGBTQ plus community, but to the South Asian community around the world and, you know, pretty much anyone who crosses their path. Last March, they tried to register their marriage with the Indian consulate in NYC under India's Foreign Marriage Act, which is a pretty standard routine process for Indian citizens who get married abroad. Prague is from Texas and Vaibhav is from Delhi. This is their story, their journey really, from the time they got denied the registration to filing a president-setting petition with the Delhi High Court urging the Indian government and its Ministry of External Affairs to recognize same-sex marriages. We talk about it all, from the personal journeys, their parents' journeys, the laws, their attorneys, and other couples who are fighting the same fight. I can't tell you how touched I am that they opened up to me about their story, and I really hope you enjoy my interview with Parag Mehta and Vaibhav Jain. are supported by Rocket Club. Rocket Club is the virtual entrepreneurship, coding, and robotics academy for kids age 7 through 14. And guys, my 7-year-old started the class like a month ago and absolutely loves it. They've covered topics such as blockchain and cryptocurrencies and the coding behind the technology. They've talked about stock market analysis NFTs, aka non-fungible tokens, which I'm trying to figure out what that means. And they do all of it through a exciting gamified curriculum. So it's super engaging and fun for kids. They also have 22 additional communities, including coding, robotics, 3D printing, and Rocket Club Live. And they are fully virtual. They have members from 29 different states and also from England, Ireland, and India. It's super, super cool, super exciting. You can check them out by going to my landing page at www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. And make sure you go through my page so you can take advantage of the free trial. Again, www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. So 
So basically, last March, you guys registered for your marriage with the Indian consulate in NYC, right? Under in India's Foreign Marriage Act. And super quick, just for the audience, the Foreign Marriage Act it's called it's routine, right, for Indian citizens. It's, a, it's like a common thing to do, and it allows Indian citizens who have married abroad, like you, Vaibhav, to have their marriage certified by a consular officer, so that the spouse can legally participate in all the things that spouses are supposed to be part of, like health directives, inheritances, everything. And just to be clear, did you guys decide to do that last March because you wanted to go to India to visit your family, Vaibhav? Is that what the situation was? Yeah, so it was right before the lockdown. And even before that, I mean, uh, the reason was, you know, most of my family is still in India. My parents are there. All of my family members are there. So, you know, if my dad were to, you know, decide and give me inheritance, which he has been talking about, you know, Parag would have no legal right over that if I wanted to share it with him. Right. So that's one. And then the second thing is we often travel to India. We go to India at least once a year, sometimes even twice a year. And, uh, you know, I, we've all, always, uh, you know, talked about this, like if something were to happen to me health wise, if I, you know, die or anything of that nature, but I would have no legal right to make any medical decisions, uh, you know, anything at all. So it, would that I, go straight to your parents? Is that what would happen? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was, it was actually very, very scary just to, you know, just the thought of it. Like, I love this man and, you know, I've been with Barack for nine years. So the thought of, you know, him not having, you know, a say over my health, over my body was just like, you know, untenable for me. Unimaginable. Yeah. Yes. Unimaginable. And I'm like, this is a very simple procedure. So, you know, let's go ahead and do it. And just so you know, under the Foreign Marriage Act, not, they just can't register the marriage. They can also solemnize marriages. So if anybody wanted to get married in front of a consular officer, uh, an Indian citizen could take their, you know, to be spouse and a couple of, uh, you know, witnesses and a consular officer could solemnize and, you know, get them married and, you know, certify saying, yes, I got them married and now they're legally married under this consular rule and in the Union of India. So that's what we decided to do. And uh, just like a regular day, and it was right before the lockdown, we went there and uh, you know, tried to register our marriage. So you, you brought, I know you brought witnesses with your friends. Yeah. I mean, did you guys go in there with an inkling of an idea that this would happen, that they would just deny it? Yeah, we expected them to deny it. That, w- that was part of the idea, right? Which is, we're trying to challenge India's laws. We're trying to say, that we are married legally in the U.S., but our marriage has no recognition, as Vabhav described, in India, and that has to change. And the way that it changes is you actually have to test the validity of the existing law. So we went there, not necessarily expecting that they would reject us, but expecting that there would be confusion, they wouldn't know what to do, and that's kind of what happened. After the initial confusion wore off, you know, the woman at the front desk, she was like, what do you mean, you two want to get registered? Like, so- that's not possible. <laughs> and then she, like, talked to the lady next to her. And it, I describe it as, like, going shoe shopping. Because, you know, when you don't find what you want, they're like, let me go see if there's something in the back. They kept going in this back room, talking to, like, the Wizard of Oz. And then finally, they called us in the back room to meet with, like, the senior consular officer. And this uncle, he, like, looked at me, and he's like, we're not going to register your marriage. I said, okay, then fine. Can you perform our marriage? Like you can, it's like getting married in front of a justice of the peace. I said, my cousin's here. My best friend's here. They'll be our witnesses. We got the paperwork all filled out. He said, no, we're not going to do that either. I said, okay, well, can you put that denial in writing? Can we have some like written proof that you denied us both of these options? He said, nope, we're not going to do that either. So then I said, are you doing this because we're a same sex couple? And dude looks me straight in the eye and says, yep. And that I didn't expect. I never expected in midtown Manhattan, 
at the consulate of the largest democracy in the world that a senior government official would look me in the face and say, yeah, I'm discriminating against you. That really pissed me off. And in a country where same-sex marriage is legal, we literally felt discriminated against in the middle of that country. And, and yeah, so it was just very humiliating, I would say. And, and, you know, we later on thought about it. Like there were couples who sat next to us. We don't know whether they came in for registration or marriage or something, but it was such a routine affair, I mean, that people right. were in getting their marriages registered, leaving. We literally had our certificate of marriage from the District of Columbia's, you know, Supreme Court, like court. And the fact that we just stood there, we sat there for almost two hours, probably, and there was absolutely nothing we could do. We felt helpless. That's insane to me. I know. I'm just like listening to this. Obviously, the next step is you guys decide to petition to the Delhi High Court. Yeah. How do you even start taking those steps? I know you you hired, I'm going to ruin these, destroy these names, Manaka, Manaka Guruswami, Manaka, and then Arundhati Katju. So how did that happen? How did those steps happen? Yeah, so uh, Minikar Arudhati, I don't know if you know, but uh, they were actually the main lawyers for the 2018 decriminalization of homosexuality in India. Right. And so fantastic. They themselves are a lesbian couple and they're so fantastic that they were featured as Time 100 uh, to, in the year 2018. So uh, when after our marriage 20, uh, in 2019, Parag and I went to Delhi, uh, you know, because my parents decided to throw us a reception for, uh, you know, celebrating our marriage. And I was big fans of Menika Narendhati and I reached out to them saying, hey, I'm in town and big fans of your work. You know, it'll mean so much to me and my husband, you know, as uh, South Asians ourselves, you know, to just like celebrate with you. So if you can come to this party, it'd be great. Can I just say, by the way, this is the most Indian way <laughs> yeah. He randomly messages these two layers on Facebook, doesn't know them from Adam or Eve. And they're like, oh, a wedding is happening? Sure, we'll come. And they show up at our wedding, and they're so wonderful, and they're oh, so loving. So kind. And they actually asked us, like, would it be okay if we got up and said a few words? And we're like, are you kidding? Like, you're the greatest lawyers in history? Like, please do say a few words. Right. And, and they, they got up, and they, go ahead. And they spoke about the importance of community and community, uh, you know, and acceptance. Now, you have to remember this. I mean, I am in front of 100 of my closest friends and family, and this is happening in New Delhi in a big hotel. And, you know, my my eighth grade English teachers there, which is a very close teacher of mine, my friends from primary school, who I only came out to a few years ago, were there. And it was so emotional for me. And then for these two lawyers to go up on the stage, speak to them in Hindi, which is my mother tongue, and saying, you know, talking about the importance of community and acceptance. And, you know, they're like, we are here to celebrate Parag and Webhav, but let's not forget, we are also here to celebrate you because we, they have taken a big step, but you all have taken a bigger step. And right. it's so important to recognize that. So that's how we basically, you know, became friends. And after March, we actually, you know, when we were, uh, you know, denied our registration of marriage, we actually were talking to them about it. And that's when they, you know, asked us, would you like legal representation? And would you like us to, you know, uh, file a petition on your behalf? And we said, sure, let's do it. Wow. I just got a, like, a lump in my throat from that. and A little bit of chills. So... It's it's you guys and also another couple, right? Kavita and Kavita, who live in Delhi, and yeah. they are fighting under a different law. They're fighting under a law called the Special Marriage Act. We're fighting right. under the Special Marriage Act. There are also other cases. There's a couple of cases under the Hindu Marriage Act. We expect some new cases to be filed. There's cases in Delhi. There's cases in Kerala. Kerala. So the, this is very similar to what happened in the U.S. If you go back and remember right. how we got marriage equality in the United States, there were cases working through state courts and through regional courts and finally making it to the Supreme Court. So the goal of this is that hopefully one or several of our cases will ultimately make it 
the Indian Supreme Court. And then if all goes well, we will win. And if we win, if any of us win, then we all win. And a little bit of context for your viewers, like yeah. so High Court, Kerala High Court are basically like the you know the district courts. Meaning, um, it's like a big, but like they call the appellate courts. Like for no, instance, it's like the state supreme court. So it's yeah. like it would be like yeah. going to the Supreme Court. Yeah. It'd be like going to the Texas Supreme Court before you yeah. go to the U.S. Supreme, US supreme court. court. Exactly. Got it. So you guys petitioned to the equivalent of a Texas Supreme Court. Yes. Yeah. Right gonna, in this case, it's a little yeah. bit different. The Delhi High Court is like the D.C. Court. Yeah. Right. Because Got the it. D.C. Court is actually considered the second highest court in the country after right. the Supreme because all the big federal cases go through the D.C. court before they go to the Supreme Court. And the reason why it's Delhi is because we were petitioning the government, right? The, it was a government agency, the government consulate that denied us. And so therefore, the seat of the government is Delhi. And that's why the Delhi court first. And not just that, because I am actually a citizen of Delhi. My address is actually registered in Delhi and Ankita and Kavita from Delhi as well. So right. our conviction sort of becomes Delhi automatically as well. Is the India Supreme Court, is that based in Delhi as well? Yeah, that is too. So that would be the next step. Yeah. Okay, got it. So May 24th, your case was scheduled to be heard. Tell me what happened. (laughs) (laughs) It got uh, it got delayed. The Solicitor General of India came on. It was supposed to be, you know, our big day in court. Right. And basically started by saying to the judges, the two judges, that uh, we haven't had time even though they'd had like several months to prepare. And this had actually been delayed once before. We were originally supposed to have the hearing in February. I was going to ask, this is, this is like the third time or something, right? Or second time? First, Our first court case was a hearing was October. And in October, our lawyers argued, they presented the petition, the government said, we need time to respond. So the judge said, okay, you have time. We'll come back in February. In February, they came back. They said, we're not ready. We need more time to respond. So we came back in May. And on May, we really thought we were going to have our hearing it was April, actually. I think it was actually, April. Actually, no, no. So it was April, but what yeah. happened was uh, the second wave in uh, of COVID hit in India. So everything was actually being pushed back. And what happened was any cases that were filed in 2021 were only given priority. Any cases older than that, they said we'd hear them somewhere in July. So that was what the conversation was. But it just so happened that there was a, another set of petitioners who came in in 2021 uh, as, you know, challenging special magic, like another petitioner. So the judges were like, we're listening to this case because it's from 2021. So why don't we combine all of them? And we got it on May 25th. When we got there in May, after multiple delays, the Solicitor General of India, who's their lawyer for the government, said, um, we're, we're still not ready. We need more time. And then he said, this is not really urgent. Like, we've got COVID happening. People are dying. We've got like this massive health crisis happening. This is not urgent. Nobody's dying because of a lack of marriage equality. So there's no need to do this right now. And, you know, like any typical busy conversation, like they're all talking over each other and there's like 15 people interrupting each other. And our lawyers trying to get a word in edgewise, um, very valiantly trying. Um, but in reality, what I think she would have said and what I know she would have said is she would have said, actually, people are directly affected. The fact that Beba's dad got COVID in December right. and had a very severe case, had to be hospitalized. And in that moment, when he's feeling completely helpless and trying to book his flights and get to India, I can't go with him as a spouse. If I were a woman, it would have been no question. U.S. citizen, Indian citizen, doesn't matter. If you're married to an Indian uh, citizen, you're supposed to be able to travel with them during COVID. But simply because our marriage isn't recognized and because I'm a man, I'm not. So there is a direct impact during this time of COVID on same-sex couples. And Parag has an overseas citizen of India, which is equivalent to having a good visa. So because of COVID, um, I mean, everything has been suspended. So only Indian citizens could actually return during the time of COVID. And if you're married to an Indian citizen, and Parag, just being a man, could not. Did you end up going, Vebov, at all? 
I did not. I just could not. Like there was just uh, so much happening, and you know, my parents were like, "What would you do?" Because I myself couldn't do much. I had to go and quarantine over there, and I needed somebody with me. Both his parents, yeah. had to, so he yeah. couldn't go home. He would yeah. have to go there. So if I had been able to go with him, he would have gone. Yeah. But he wasn't going to go by himself and be isolated in India for two right, years. right. Because you don't. It's such a mess of it. And are your parents? They're okay. Yeah, thanks for asking. Ask both us, okay. And we did reunite with them, uh, and uh, you know they're fully vaccinated. But obviously, since the second wave has hit, they are stuck at home, and you know it's very difficult. It's not easy. Imagine what it's like for gay couples and for gay people, where not only are you dealing with this massive public health crisis, but you can't even be with the people you love. You can't even have your sanctioned marriages. Forget us for a second. Imagine people living in India right now whose partners and whose, you know, so-called roommates that the people that they love and live with, they have no ability to support them, to like make medical decisions for them. So this has real life or death consequences for people in the middle of a pandemic. If they lose their, their husband or wife, that, I mean, like they, that's it. They have no rights. They have no rights at all. Yeah. It's just something we told, of course we take for granted here. Of course. I know it's just crazy. I really quickly, Section 377, I know it's been overturned. It, it, it was prohibiting homosexual activity, right? So you guys aren't technically asking for a new law, but you're trying just to include same-sex marriage into that law, right? Am I saying that right? Like, you're not really saying this is not a whole completely new thing, but same-sex marriage should be included in that. So I think there's a difference in our cases. Okay. The case that Gavit and Ankita are arguing is that the Special Marriage Act is on its face unconstitutional because it doesn't allow for same-sex marriage. Ours is a different case because ours simply says that the Foreign Marriage Act of 1969 does not speak to what the gender of the couple is. That if you get married in another country and you're an Indian citizen, then your marriage is recognized in India. And think about 1969, what was happening. That was the time period when your parents and my parents were leaving in large numbers, leaving. Mm-hmm. were coming to study here, they were coming to get work and jobs in the UK and Canada and the US, and they were getting married while they were here. Their marriage is recognized. It's a contract thing. Nothing unusual about it, as you said at the beginning, completely routine. All we're saying is that observe your own law. A law in the United, a marriage in the United States is a marriage in India. Well, our marriage is legal in the United States, so it should therefore be legal in India. And the only reason it's not legal in India is because I'm a man. Right. If I were a woman, there'd be no question. And that is sex discrimination. Which the Constitution there prohibits that, technically, prohibits discrimination against sex. There's no new law necessary. It's just interpreting the existing law correctly and inclusively. To say, yeah, we're not going to discriminate on the basis of sex. If the U.S. recognizes their marriage, India should do, no question. And what's interesting is our lawyers actually mentioned this to the government and to the judges while they were speaking. They said there is, it is not adversarial in nature. We are not your adversaries. We are all Indian citizens here. All we are asking is that you are the government of, the, of India. You are responsible for every Indian citizen. You know, take care of every Indian citizen, not just like, you know, a select group of citizens. So it's not adversarial in nature. All we're asking is make a little bit of provision for those who don't have any provision right now. I just feel like they're just circling around this definition, right? And just trying to get away with not including something which should obviously be included according to the laws. What what difference does it make? Like, why? how does it hurt anybody else if people who are in a loving, caring relationship want to get married? And by the way, they don't just want all the rights that come with it, but they also want the responsibilities that come with it. If they're willing to take on the obligations of marriage, then why not let them? And, and we're Indians. We're all about marriage. Like, what? Like, what else? What else is there in life? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the most interesting part of this is 
you know, I think in India, this takes on a specific significance because marriage is so critical to our function, right? Everything in the Indian society revolves around the marital relationship. Even you use the term kaka and kaki and masa and masi. These are all terms that are based on the marital relationship. You know right. how you're related to somebody based on the marriage. So to, to quote a famous Bollywood film title, who am I to you? When I go to India, who am I to you? I become persona non grata. I, I become, I lose my identity. He's my roommate. I mean, I've seen that movie a hundred thousand times. Amazing. I love it. That's going to be the name of this podcast episode. Exactly. I, mean, I mean, done. And Babel, I wanted to ask you, you obviously grew up there. I don't know if you can answer this. I know you've been in the States for a long time, but do you sense any positive shift towards the gay community at all in India? Is it, is it, is this like, okay, you do. I do. So yeah. Thanks for asking that question because, you know, even though I've been in in the U S actually August will be a decade, but, but uh, one of the reasons I left um, India, I mean, it was because I could never feel myself. I always felt that I was living a dual life. I was living a lie. When I'm in Delhi, I'm telling my family that, yeah, I have a girlfriend down south and I'm down south studying. You know, when I went to school in Bangalore, I'm telling, yeah, I have a girlfriend back up north. <laughs> so, you know, constantly people asking, oh, why don't you play cricket? Why don't you have a girlfriend? This and that. So it, it was just so much for me. Why don't you play cricket, Isan? Cricket, yeah. Why don't you play cricket with her? Why, why don't you have like a girlfriend? Uh, so it's just it, too many questions that I just didn't want have answers to and didn't want to honestly give answers to. I just felt that, you know, I couldn't live myself the way I, and I myself had was, you know, very confused. So after all these years, I definitely, definitely, definitely see a shift. Like the amount of, uh, you know, activism that's happening right now in, the, in India is enormous. You know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't even imagine this, but I have an activist friend who's based out of, uh, you know, Maharashtra. So, so some days back, there was some popular, uh, you know, Marathi soap opera that was you know on television and the protagonist in the uh, in the show is actually talking to an lgbtq character and the character is shown to be very effeminate and the protagonist and her husband are basically just like uh, you know belittling that person making fun of him and saying you're so foolish you're this and that you know trying to change yourself you're a disgrace here and then you know it was just miriam laughing stock in that uh, you know in that episode and then these a group of activists you know heard about this you know the word travel that this was an episode talked about LGBTQ folks and, you know, in a very derogatory way, this activist went to the high court and said, this is homophobia. You're promoting homophobia after 377 was decriminalized. The government was told and the court had issued an order saying there could be no, you know, discrimination based on, you know, somebody's sexual orientation and, you know, there should be concerted efforts that no homophobia should be spread by anybody. The producers were informed that this is incorrect and you should rectify this. The court is still, the case is still going on. In a matter of weeks, the producers did a follow-up episode. And in the episode, the protagonist comes to this LGBTQ character, apologizes. I apologize on, on screen, in, in, you know, in, in, in character, saying, I'm so sorry. Little Marathi that I understood, my friend, you know, shared with me. And as I'm telling you, I'm getting goosebumps. She apologized and she said, I'm so sorry, you know, whatever I said, please don't mind because, you know, I don't know any better and I'm trying to learn. And this was not the way to talk to somebody who's different. And I apologize. That's huge. That is huge. And I'm like, you know, when you can change heart, hearts and mind by such simple steps, that's what can change it. Yes, judiciary can change things. Yes, the government can change things. But media can play such a huge role. You know, like, Parag, you tell me media plates are a huge role in the U.S., 
I think about shows like Will and Grace. Will and Grace, yeah. I grew up watching Will and Grace in India. Like I asked my family to send me Will and Grace DVDs because that was our film of reference. So right. media such an important role. And ten years ago, I could never imagine things like these would happen. Well, I was reading on one in one of your articles. You never went to a pride parade in India because you were just too scared. And then your first one here, you met Barack. Right. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> You're like, why haven't I been going this whole time? <laughs> it really works out, doesn't it? It worked out for me. I'm glad he didn't go to one sooner. He might have been Mr. Right before. That's yeah, true. Or, or, maybe, or maybe Mr. Right now for that time. But um, <laughs> wasn't that 10 years ago this summer? Like nine, around nine this time? Years, nine, years. nine years ago. Okay. Okay. Nine years ago. And I was deeply closeted in India. And, you know, there are still, and, you know, hats off to all these, uh, you know, to, uh, you know uh, activists who have been doing pride parades for almost a decade in India. Also, they may be small. They may be 50 people, not as large as New York. DC, but they still do it. They do it. a lot of them do it behind masks, but there's you know considerable media attention. And I was scared. I really want to do it. Some of my friends were, were brave enough to do it, and I was just too scared. I'm like, what if I'm on television? Some something, yeah. and I just wasn't sure. And this year, when I come to like in 2011, when I came to the US, it was after Pride, but 2012, beautiful summer in DC. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna go and march in the parade. But then I'm like, oh, no, I think that's too forward. Let's not march this year. Let's just watch it this year. How's that? So I, <laughs> So I decided to just go to the parade and, you know, w- waited for the South Asian group that I heard about. And I was so excited. Oh, my God, these people look like me and they're celebrating their sexuality. That's crazy. I have to go see these people. See this fabulous South Asian group, Paragus Parada that group, wearing this cute white shirt, uh, T-shirt, said the word Desi on it. Whenever he saw oh, us. Of course it did, Parag. Of course it said this. But cute, yeah, awesome, cute guy that he is. He And whenever he saw somebody remotely brown looking, he would come, you know, do a little Bollywood dance with them and then just leave him. I taught him all his dance moves, by the way, Babel. Yeah, she did. Other podcast, she did. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, because he yeah. did really well. Yeah, I'll just take take credit for all of that. That's Please. fine. That's fine. <laughs> and then I know this is a very large topic to unpack. Homosexuality has been part of India's history and culture forever, right? And so can we simplify this by maybe blaming <laughs> British colonialists for coming in? It was absolutely part of it. Absolutely. I mean, Section 377, the, the code that the court finally ruled unconstitutional, mm-hmm. um, which criminalized homosexuality, that is not an Indian law or a Hindu law or a law that comes out of our culture. Created by the British, it was one of their legacies that they left behind, like a lot of other bad stuff that they left behind. But you know, the other big thing that I've been realizing lately that is the worst legacy of the British, the British left us with this idea of scarcity politics, that there's only enough for a few. Right. And so we all have to compete with each other for a few spots, a few spots at the job, right. a few spots in education. The other day I got into an argument with a trans rights activist who was like, well, you guys are taking up all the media attention with marriage, but what about the right of trans people to exist? And I said, why are these two things in competition? We need both of those things. Trans people should get their rights. We need to end transphobia. We need to make sure that trans people have the, the health care and the provisions they need. And we also need to make sure that marriage equality happens. But it's this colonial era mentality that only one of us can get a seat at the table. There's only room for one of us to get in the door. And that might be the worst legacy of colonialism of all. I love that you said that. I was just I just interviewed her name is uh, Shabari Ahmed. She was a writer for Quantico. Mm-hmm. And we were just talking about this my last interview she said the exact same thing, the scarcity thing. Because I was telling her about like, you know, my own journey and not getting any support from a lot of South Asian women on this podcast journey and just getting, you know, whatever, as I'm getting growing and getting bigger and getting sponsors. And she's like, yes, because we think there's not enough room for each other in, in whatever particular industry you're in or whatever you're talking about or fighting for. 
It's crazy. Like, how do we still think this way? But see, our parents, when they immigrated here, they brought that overseas with them. They carried that baggage with them. Right. So the other day I was um, seeing an ad for, you know, that TV show, Never Have I Ever? It's right. super popular on Netflix about the uh, Mindy Kaling's a producer. And it's about an Indian girl growing up, you know, her dad dies. This season, apparently, the storyline is another pretty Indian girl joins her class and there's immediate competition. <laughs> and I'm like, why, why? is that the storyline? There's only for one pretty smart, clever Indian girl in the classroom. Like, what are you talking about? We're a nation of 1.4 billion. We can't keep competing with each other. We're not trying to carve out our piece of the pie. We're trying to make the pie bigger for everybody. Of course, I've read about your wedding. I actually interviewed you right before your wedding. Um, and I just actually reread your dad's letter that he wrote in 1999. Again, goosebumps. And then maybe of your parents, you know, I, they, I know they hosted that reception in Delhi. And, now, and then I read their surrogate parents to several LGBTQ youngsters. That's amazing. Can you speak a little bit about your own parents' journey? And then like, how are they feeling about this case now? Are they scared for you? Nerv- I mean, they live there, right? Like they're surrounded, they're in India. Yeah. And so it might be affecting them differently. And so it's it's been quite a journey for them. So I came out to my parents um, in 2013. I was in Switzerland doing a fellowship with the WHO. So my parents were very excited. Oh my God, our kid is in Switzerland. That's where all the Bollywood movies were shot. Let's go see Switzerland. So they're like, we have a fine sometime. Let's let's go talk about here, right? Something. Come on. That's right. And I was like, let's do it. So my parents came and, you know, that was around the time when, you know, some of my cousins found out that I was gay and, you know, Parag being the awesome support that he's always been for me, you know, helped me understand that, you know, it's very important for them to hear from you versus hear through the grapevine because then you can control the message. You can tell them what you feel versus what others perceive you feel. So, yeah, on the last day of their trip, I, you know, sat down with them and I said, mom and dad, I have to tell you something. And they said, what's going on? Yeah, tell us. So I said, you know, I don't want to get married. I don't like girls. I'm like, oh, that's it. That's nothing. Like, that's nothing. <laughs> I said, there's a little more. You know. To clarify, he's perfectly kind to girls. He loves girls. Yeah. 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 But I, I don't, just don't want to marry one. I told them, but then I said, I'm gay. And my parents had absolutely no frame of reference. So I had to help them understand what gay was. And then they were shocked. But being the amazing parents that they are, they were immediately supportive. My dad came, you know, put his hands on my shoulder and said, it's going to be all right, son, don't worry, it's going to be all right. And then, you know, we had a very long conversation just helping them understand, you know, what it was. But then also at the, in, the middle, in, the, in the middle of the conversation, my mom said to me, she said, I think I failed as a mom. And I was like, why would you say that? Are you saying that because I'm gay? Because it's not your fault. And I'm so sorry if you feel that way. She said, no, 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 no. I don't think I feel as a mom because of that. I feel because of a mom. I feel as a mom because it took you 26 years of your life to tell such a big secret. You've been holding on to this truth, rather, this such a big truth. And you've been holding on to that truth for 26 years. So maybe I feel as a mother that I can give you that comfort. I can give you that, that space that you could actually share with me. And I am the mom. I should be taking, I should be the one worrying. You are the kid. You should be the one living freely and happily. So from now onwards, that'll be my job as a mother. But, you know, this was I'm great. just going to do a round of applause really quick on here. That's, that's a pretty fantastic response. Yeah. But again, the journey was not easy because, yeah. you know, in, in, in that moment, I love the fact that my parents led with love, kindness, and they said, yes, this is our son. We have to protect him for whatever he is, whoever he is. We love him. And they made sure I knew that immediately. But after that, when they had time to analyze, they went back to India. They were very difficult times. Like they constantly were challenging, you know, 
the entire notion. They weren't sure why it was happening. They started blaming themselves. They're like, perhaps we we are the problem, this and that. So it was a very, very long journey. Right. And there, I mean, to 2019, when we are celebrating our wedding and my parents proudly sitting, you know, in the wedding mandap with us and, you know, blessing me. And, you know, they've just become absolute champions and they love Parag like a, you know, like a son now. And, uh, you know, the best thing that came, you know, in this entire um, you know, procedure of my parents, you know, coming on board was also my mom decided to tell my grandmother, my nani, my mother's mother. And, uh, you know, she was so worried. And this is the matriarch of my mother's side of the family, 85 year old woman, you know, very little education, speaks only Hindi, small town, lives in a small town in India. And mom decided to tell her. And she asked my mom, she said, is Webber happy? She said, yeah. Is Webber healthy? Yeah. Is this take care of him? Love him? Yes. So why are you worried? TK. TK, everything's going to be okay. So, and my mom's like, uh, you know, I was so scared and she's crying on the phone, you know, telling my grandmother, I was so scared to tell you this. And she's like, why are you worried? We're all here for you. Don't you just worry? And, uh, you know, ask them to bring Parag. I'm going to meet both of them. I'm going to give them my blessings. So it just so happened, the stars aligned. We all ended up meeting my grandmother. She, you know, sat with Parag. I can't tell you. I mean, that day was the most emotional day of my life to date. I'm seeing my nani sitting with Parag, you know, feeding him jalebis and all these snacks in, in the little town that he lives in. And I'm like bawling. I'm like, probably oh, probably calling him too skinny, like stuffing his face. And, yeah, know. stuffing his face. And just, it was amazing. And then after our wedding and all of this was over, I remember in, in they go to a gym every morning. So my parents uh, knew of a guy who was gay. And he actually came up to my parents and said, uh, auntie, uncle, what you're doing is amazing. I read about what you have done so far for your son. And it just makes me so happy and gives me so much of hope. And my parents were like, you know, son, it's all right. You know, just let us know if you need our help. We are here for you. We are like your parents. So if you need anything, just tell us. Don't even worry about it. So from being so afraid to coming all the way here is, is remarkable. That's an amazing journey, like as remarkable as the journey you guys probably went through like that and going through that, at, you know, at a later stage in life. And like you said, having no reference point for it and then just and then hosting this big ass party. And now just <laughs> I mean, wow, I should interview them. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> and, and then how are they feeling about the case since they actually do live there? So, uh, very honestly, they were a little bit worried at the moment because okay. so much of unrest happening in India at that time. There were farmer protests happening, COVID was happening. Then also, uh, there was so much of uh, you know unrest within the. I don't know if you remember, there were uh, riots in Delhi, uh, you know, Hindu-Muslim riots. So they were just worried that there was so much of extremism happening at that time. So they were generally worried, and they were like, "Are you sure you want to do this?" But you know, they they sat down with me, talked through the entire case, and then they said, "You know, I think you're making the right." decision and right. we'll just have to be careful you have to be careful but um, I think you're doing the right thing and do it but honestly they were worried and I'd be remiss not to ask this just out of curiosity like is there any part you Barack both like are you guys ever worried about their safety there that was the most important consideration we're here in America right now so we're a little bit removed from everything and they're there in the thick of it and you know with the current state of things in India um, there are just people with extremist views you can see it on social media Whenever anybody posts a story or an article, a video about our wedding or about our court case, uh, some of the comments, I, always tell, I always tell them never read the comments, but you can't help it. Sometimes you see the vicious and vile things that people say, and, you know, people have said some things that are pretty scary. And so we always recognize that, 
you know, his parents are taking a big risk because they're there and they're much right. more, they're much more vulnerable than we are. But at the end of the day, where we landed on is if you think about all the other gay couples in India who potentially could have fought this case, we are much more privileged than they are. We're privileged in terms of the love and support of our family, in terms of having financial resources to be able to litigate a case like this, to have the great lawyers that we do, and to be able to live in safety the way we do, you know? Right. So in some ways, we have a responsibility to use that privilege to fight on behalf of all of those couples. Right. I mean, the fact that both of your parents had that, I mean, I know also, Parag, I know your mom had to go through her journey. I mean, so did your dad as well, but more difficult for your mom. But this is not a common story, right? A lot of Indian parents wouldn't react this way. And so it's it's not to sound cheesy, but it's a big blessing. Thank God, you know? So the case, it's been, it's being pushed back. How are, how are you guys feeling about this? Are we optimistic? Is this going to take three years? Like what's, what do you guys, what's going to happen? Well, it's like anything in India, right? What everything one year is probably gonna take five years. Five years. So how long it'll take, but we do have a hearing coming up next week. Okay. Um, so finally on July 6th um, in the morning India time, which will be midnight around uh, July 5th, our time, um, we will have our hearing and hopefully we'll get a full hearing this time and then we'll see what happens. But this is a process. And we knew from the beginning that this is going to be a long process. Even right. 377, it took several times. We lost the first time, then we won, then we lost again, then we won. So it can take several years. We don't know. But as far as how we feel about it, we're obviously optimistic. Because the one thing that really gives me hope about the 2018 case uh, that the Indian Supreme Court decriminalized homosexuality in, is at the end of it, the judge, what was her name? Her name was Indu Malhotra. Indu Malhotra, one of the judges who wrote the opinion. She ended the ruling by saying that history owes an apology to the gay community in India. Right. And that was pretty remarkable. I remember that night, because I was fast asleep, and he woke me up in the middle of the night, tears in his eyes, saying, we won, we won. And he read me that last paragraph. And I actually I, wrote that quote down, because I was like, that was chilling. Chilling. Yeah. And I remember like waking up that night going, that is incredible. And that's what gives me hope. I think the judiciary of India, I think the people of India are, are good people. I think they, we have to give them the credit that we always err on the side of expanding rights, not right. taking them away. And India's entire story over the last century has been women's rights, Dalit's rights, Muslim rights, rights, rights for every minority group. Why wouldn't they do this? Look, there may be setbacks, but it'll, ultimately we're going to get to the right place. Yeah, I'm very, very hopeful, just like Parag. And I believe in my judiciary because it was the same judiciary that gave us decriminalization of homosexuality. So why not? I believe in them. And then we also have to remember India's judiciary is so powerful. It's one of the most respected judiciaries in Asia in, and the largest democracy in the world. Right. So when they make a judgment, Asia listens. All of Asia listens. You know, you were mentioning 377. It's so interesting. Uh, I mean, if you actually ask people in other South Asian countries, they all have the exact same law. That's the legacy of the British, like how they've destroyed, you know, all of our, uh, you know, existence like this, like just by these random laws. So when judiciaries like, you know, the Indian judiciary speaks, all other nations in Asia take notice and they realize that, yeah, this is something that is moving forward. They take the lead. Yeah, they're taking the lead and I'm very, very hopeful. So I have to ask you, both of you, what do you want to say to the young men and women there that are closeted, not out yet, scared to talk to their parents, to accept who they are? I would just, first of all, say there's no one size fits all. That's why Parag and I always say this. It worked out for me. It worked out for Parag. Thank God. But it's a process. It may not be as easy for you to come out to your parents. 
I tell them to come out. Uh, I tell everybody to come out when they are ready, not under any societal pressure, any peer pressure. And the second thing is they should only come out when they're financially, emotionally, and physically safe. Because safety is so important at this uh, day and age that you absolutely must feel safe. And you know, for I hope and pray that you know that your parents would react the way my parents and Parag's parents reacted. But if they don't, guess what? There's an entire universe of your chosen family, like Parag and me, who are there for you. My parents, Parag's parents, are there for you. Who will take care of you and you know are with you. So do it when you're ready. But it's very also it's it's very important to come out as well. That's when people will learn that how important this issue is. In uh, you know in several I think almost five six years ago, even before homosexuality was decriminalized, there was a judge in uh, one of our judiciary who said, called um, LGBTQ community a minuscule minority. He said use the word minuscule minority like they're a minority within a minority. I haven't even seen gay people. Like, where are they? Are you sure they really need these rights and they're fighting for decriminalization of homosexuality? And it's hey, so Bhagwan, really hey, Bhagwan. And so you know, when people come out, when they should have themselves seen, I think that's the most impactful thing because at the end of the day, our courts, our government, are all people. Our society is you and I. Right. When they see people like us reflected within their own households. So many things changed. Wasn't that a number that you said, Barack, in an interview? Seventy million. I estimated seventy million LGBTQ people in India, um, and of course, marriage is going to be a benefit for many, of, but not all of them, right? Not everybody right. should get married. Look, I think that the only thing I would add to what Vebov said is, I'm so proud of him because, to me, this is the ultimate act of patriotism. So, for a lot of our family and friends who feel very proud of being Indian, whether they live in India or they've gone elsewhere. They carry that national pride, right? And I have great respect for people like that. Vebov is one of those people. He loves his country. He's come here to study. He's come here to work. But he considers himself an Indian. He's proud of his Indian identity. This is a guy who every January 26th wakes me up in the middle of the night to watch the India Day parade, even though it's the exact same parade every year. <laughs> we watch him with tears in his eyes and, and singing Vande Mataram and all these things. This is patriotism. And part of patriotism is loving your country so much that you want it to be the best version of itself. India is the world's largest democracy. It needs to be the world's most inclusive democracy. Right. We have faith in the government. We have faith in the people. But most of all, we have faith in the values that led us to independence. And we always expand those rights. So right. I'm excited about this. I think it's going to be amazing when it happens. We, we've had those values before and we can get them back. Right. right. And I quickly want to touch on, on one more thing, Parag, with you. You know, growing up, it was obviously hard for you to come out, but you also had depression, maybe in high school it was. I would assume a lot of kids are going through mental health issues as well. How would you say for them to get help? Like, what's the best way for them to deal with it if they don't have support or access? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question and for raising the topic, because I think this is so critical. I'm really vocal about the importance of removing the stigma. The most important thing you can do is if you're suffering uh, from mental illness, if you're suffering from depression, or if you're feeling anxiety, is to talk about it. Find a safe place and a safe person to speak to about this, because the only way that it gets better is if you actually go out and seek support. Right. Years ago, I remember Veba turned to me one day, we were just walking around in a shopping mall, and he looked at me and he said, I think I suffer from depression. And I had kind of suspected it, but we never put words to it. And it was a remarkable moment of bravery where he said, I think I need to go get help for this. And he did. And he went and found a therapist and he went and he got a prescription for a medication to help treat it. 
why do we treat mental illness differently than every other illness? If you came to me and said, I think I have cancer or I think I have diabetes, would there be any shame in that? So the same is true for, for mental illness. And as far as our society goes, please, if you are a parent or a grandparent or, or somebody who loves a child that's suffering from depression, do everything in your power to let them know that it's okay. Right. And that when they tell you they have this, don't dismiss it as if it's some Western thing. Right. No, depression and anxiety and mental illness are part of our culture. They've always been a part of our culture, just like homosexuality has always been. Let's stop ignoring the thing that's in front of us. Let's talk about it because talking about it is the first step to fixing it. Right. It's a big issue, you know, and I'm, I'm glad South Asians are talking about it a lot more. So I know we had briefly touched on that the last interview two and a half years ago. Um, and so, no, thanks for, for saying that. And I wanted to close it up. I, I think this is one, one of you guys said this in the inter- interview, but I, I loved the way you put it. You, you basically said, we, we're not seeking a right to be left alone, but the right to be acknowledged as equals and be embraced with dignity by the law. Well, it's moving beyond acceptance and inclusion right. to belonging. Right. What do we all want? And it's the most desi thing of all. We want to belong. We want to belong to a family. We want to belong to a community. We want to belong to a society. And everything that our parents taught us as kids applies here too, is find somebody. Find somebody who will be your life partner. Find somebody who will be your companion. Don't be alone. We are a society that's built on the idea of connection. And if anything we learned over the last year it sucks to be disconnected from the people we love. Why would you deny that the 70 million people who just want to live their lives and who want to belong in this society? It's like belonging is our basic human need. And our human right. And our our human right. I was just just about to say that we tell people, a lot of people are like, why marriage equality? Like not everybody wants to get married. So, but I can actually tell them that, you know, marriage equality doesn't mean that everybody has to get married. Marriage equality basically means... Whoever wants to get married. To get married, yeah. Has a right to get married. Right. And if you don't want to get married, don't. Can you imagine how good it would be for the Indian economy if gay people could have weddings? Imagine those weddings and how much money it's going to pump into caterers and florists and decorators and venues and DJs. We will be, the pink economy is a big economy. India, taste the rainbow. And, And then you guys also know how to throw weddings. And so like, it just all makes sense. It just, I don't, yeah, it's going to happen. I'm very excited. feeling these guys will be making history very soon and could not be more proud of my dear friend Parag. And I'll pretend I was part of it for like, you know, a second or so. Guys, if you want to keep up with this case and learn more about all the fantastic work Parag and Vaybov are doing, please follow them on all socials because they're there. Parag V. Metha and Vaybov Jane. I will spell it out in my notes. You don't want me to spell it out here. As always, you can follow me at TuckerDotPodcast, TuckerDotWithAmi.com. Happy Pride Month, everyone. I'll see you in July. Love you. This is Tuckered Out. <laughs>